and we have been working through a series called Things That Last, uh, looking at the book of Philippians, and we've made it. We've made it to the final chapter. Um, So let me read it to you, Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. We're going to go just to verse 3 today. Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about lasting reconciliation. Uh, And let me tell you, just before I ask you to pray for me, um, man, this text did a number on me um, this week, this idea of reconciliation with one another, as I'm sure um, when you hear those words, reconciliation with one another, um, there may be your own things going through your mind. Um, I see many of you taking a deep breath, (laughs) Uh, and I think it's because we need to hear this. Uh, This text, I think, is very timely for us. And so if you would, um, go ahead and pray for me. Um, I think there's a couple specific things you can pray for me today. Uh, This text was hard this week. Uh, It was was very heavy for me, and um, it took a little bit more study and a little bit more prayer and so I, I feel, just being honest, I feel almost unequipped um, preaching on this idea because I think the Lord has done a lot in my heart on this topic and he is still working on me. And so if you would pray for me that the words that are said today are, are from him and not from me. It's not anything that I want to say or any opinion that I have, but it's, it's just the word of God and the Holy Spirit working. So uh, please pray for me. And then pray for yourself. I don't know where you're coming in. I don't know if there's some reconciliation. I don't know if you feel the tension of unreconciliation. I don't know where you're at. And so uh, pray for yourself. Uh, pray that you would hear God's word. He would lead you clearly. Um, and that it would fill your heart with hope, not despair. Um, that the spirit would fill you. And so pray for yourself. Well, Father, we love you. We trust you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, so the question I want us to answer today is what does it mean to have reconciliation with one another? And to be honest, it's a loaded question, right? (laughs) Like what all goes into that? It's not only loaded, it's kind of a sensitive question, and it can be a complicated question. But regardless, I think it's extremely important. What do we do when we find ourselves in conflict with others in the faith family? And as I've thought about our faith family this week, I think it's become clear um, that this is a timely passage for God to lay before us, which is kind of the beauty of going through books expositionally, right? Like, you know, if you just say, hey, Colton, just preach on Sunday, I wouldn't have picked this text, (laughs) uh, Philippians 4, 1 through 3, Uh, but that's the beauty of going through it verse by verse is God lays it before us and says, this is what you're you're talking about. But, but it, I think this is a timely passage for us. I think it's a good uh, passage for us to consider as we think about not only what's happening in our culture the last few years, where everywhere you look, there's disagreement, where everywhere you look, there, there's, um, there is anger 
and dissension and envy and rivalry. Um, and not only that, but as we think about our faith family um, and, and what's happened here over the last year or so, that it's a timely passage for us. And I think it's, it's good because I think if you think about the greatest dangers to the health of a church, right, the greatest dangers to the health of a church, I think it's the enemy's ability to create conflict, dissension, and rivalry from within. That when the people of God turn their eyes from focusing on the hope of the gospel, just beyond, when Christ becomes secondary in our faith family and the concerns of the world become primary for us, when the concerns of our selfish ambition becomes primary, when that happens in a faith family, you will begin to see the foundation crack. And a question I wrestled with this week as I looked at this text and this portion of the book of Philippians is why? Why might Paul do this at this point in the letter? Like, if you think about the first three chapters, he's gone through some serious exposition of the gospel and he's built his case really well for the love of Christ, for the affection of Christ, for the need for the passionate pursuit of Christ, for the cultivation of holy discontentment in us. He's he's creating an argument for the working out of salvation and grace-driven effort for our responsibility to press into the things of Christ because Christ has made us his own. And after all that, it seems like he presses pause for a second to talk to these two women. And he makes a plea for their reconciliation. And so I honestly, I just wrestled why. Like why at this point in the letter? Why does he even do that? I think, as I've prayed about this, I think it's because he knows that a divided faith family, a divided church, is a church, a church that's lost its identity in Christ. When the people of God find themselves positioned not towards Christ, but towards one another in anger, dissension, the inability to reconcile, the, the holding of grudges, if that's our position towards one another, then, then I believe that that is evidence that we have forgotten the truth of the gospel. Where there is no effort of reconciliation, I think there's an evidence of a lack of transformation of the gospel. So make no mistake, this text, so I think this part of Philippians is, is passed over pretty easily when we're just reading it. This part of Philippians is incredibly significant. So he says in verse one, therefore my brothers who I'm, whom I love and long for, he says, my joy and crown, <laughs> stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So he starts off this section by reminding them how much he loves them. He says, I love you, I long for you. He tells them that he's, uh, they're his joy and crown. Crown meaning he takes pride in them. He's proud of the work that God has done among them. But then he says, stand firm in the Lord. Now that's a phrase that Paul will often say in his letters. Like here's just two examples, Galatians 5.1. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And then there's Ephesians 6.13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, stand firm. So in many cases, when Paul tells the church to stand firm, he says it, and this is important, because there is an opposing force trying to steal us away from the joy we have in Christ. Like in Galatians, it's the temptation to go back to the things that enslave us in this world. So he says, stand firm. (laughs) 
Don't forget that Christ has set you free. In Ephesians, he tells them, hey, put on the whole armor of God. And with the armor of God equipped, you will be able to stand firm against the evil of the world. And then here's one more example that is incredibly significant. Peter says something similar in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. He says, be sober-minded. I don't know if this is up there. Good. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And then he says at the beginning of verse 9, resist him firm in your faith. So there is an adversary that exists in the world. And I mean, just this isn't me saying this is, this is what the Bible, the Bible, look at the language. There is an adversary who the Bible describes like a lion that is looking for someone to devour. And scripture says that we should stand firm in our faith so that we can resist him. And friends, I don't think it's a coincidence that Paul would tell the church to stand firm in their faith and then immediately mention a specific situation that could potentially divide them. I don't think that's an accident because there is an enemy that wants to destroy our fellowship. There is a spiritual battle, battle waging among us, and the enemy wants us to take our enemy, I mean, our gaze off the beauty of Christ. He wants to do everything he can to make us look away from him and look at the imperfections of one another. That's what he wants to do, to move in this space with our selfish ambitions, with our goals, our, our flesh, and forget the why of why we gather, the why of why we fellowship with one another. And so he says in verse 2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So here we have an example of two women in the church in Philippi. And it's tempting to say that this moment is separate from the rest of the letter, right? Like as if Paul is taking these two women aside and having a side conversation from the real meat of the book of Philippians. But if you really think about it, this moment is a real life example for this church of what Paul has been telling the church in Philippi throughout the whole letter. He, he tells these two women, hey, agree in the Lord, which, by the way, for Paul to do that, for Paul to list these women by name in his letter that would have been read out to the entire, entire congregation, that's a bold move, okay? Like, could you imagine if I stood up here and I said, well, let me think of two names we don't have here. I'm not even going to try, right? If I, if I just said some names and you were like, oh, he's talking about you, right? Like, that would not go well. In fact, there's a, a famous story about Jonathan Edwards, who was a pastor. This, okay, let me say it. During the, he was a pastor in the Great Awakenings in the 1700s, and he called out some young men, uh, like, by name for reading improper books, which I have no idea what improper books meant in the 1700s. And all the moms got mad, and that's one of the things that eventually got him fired. <laughs> I think that's funny. Um, but regardless, Paul calls these women out by name. Okay? He calls them out by name. And he says, you should agree in the Lord. Okay? And this moment is a really small example of what Paul has been saying throughout the entirety of the letter. That, that word agree, it's actually a phrase, uh, be of a mind that is the same. It translated in the ESV to agree. I think the NIV actually translates it better. Um, the NIV says that they should be of the same mind. And this is consistent with what he has been telling them 
all throughout the book. So let me just give you a few examples. Go to Philippians 1, verse 27. He tells them at the very beginning of the book, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are what? Standing firm, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Do you see it? We see that phrase, standing firm, in verse 27. And he says that they are to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind. He says they should strive side by side. But by the way, which is what was said about these women in chapter 4, verse 3, he tells them, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. So that would lead us to believe that at one point, these women were of one spirit. They were of one mind. They were friends, unified in the gospel, but something's happened, and now there is conflict. Okay, and then, uh, and then here in verse 28, we get a clue as to why this is so important, this idea of one mind, striving side by side. Look at verse 28. Here, let me read the last part of 27. With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and here's what he says and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So if the faith family is of one mind, if they are of one spirit, if they are striving side by side, then that shows two things to those who Paul says would oppose the people of God, that our striving, our unity before God is a sign of their destruction. It's a sign that at the end of the day, for those who would oppose Christ, they will not overcome what God has done. Because if we are striving side by side and want in Christ, then we can't be overtaken. We can't be fooled. And second, our oneness and our striving side by side, is, and this is so important, is a sign of our salvation. It's a sign of our salvation. That our unity in the gospel, despite our differences, shows that we live for something more praiseworthy than ourselves that we lay down our lives before one another. It shows that our concern is not for our own selfish gain, but our concern is for the glory and cause of Christ and nothing else. Go to chapter two, chapter two, verses one through five. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same Love, being in full accord and of one mind. Like you can hear him pleading with Yodia and Syntyche here. Hey, be of the same mind. Be in full accord. Paul is so burdened that the people of God would not be opposed to each other, but that the church would be one. And then in verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. So Yodia, do nothing from selfish ambition. Syntyche, do nothing from selfish ambition. Think about it this way. Yodia, in humility, count Syntyche as more significant than yourself. And Syntyche, count Yodia as more significant than yourself. You can hear him talking, almost talking to these women throughout this letter. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And he says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to show them 
that Christ, though he had all authority and power in the universe, he laid it all down on the cross. And then one more, Philippians 3.14, he says, I press on towards the goal for the prize for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he says this, let those of you who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. He says, hey, I press on towards the goal of Christ. And he says, those of us who are mature, this is how we think. For those of us who are mature, we keep our eyes set on Christ. And he says, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to them. So I have no idea if he had Yodia and Syntyche in mind when he wrote this. But regardless, I do think it would apply to them, right? If you're in disagreement, let's trust that God will reveal that and give us a path forward. Okay, so before we move on to some practicals, one thing is clear. The faith family is called, instructed by God, to be of one mind. Specifically, the same mind that Christ had that sent him to the cross. We, we are to be of one spirit, and we are to strive side by side in the gospel. And there's one other thing in verse 3 that I think is really helpful here when we approach this idea of reconciliation. He says, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. And then he says this at the end, whose names are in the book of life. That is important. Paul reminds them, hey, your names are in the book of life. Because while we understand, right, like, okay, we are to be of one mind, we are to be of one spirit, I know that. But the reality is, this place is filled with broken people. Like you and I, and we've seen this, we are messy. Relationships are messy. This, having a faith family from a diverse group of people who have different ideas and different backgrounds and different passions, when you put them together, it can get messy really quick, right? There will be conflict. There will be strife. And Paul reminds them, hey, your names are in the book of life. So I think we need to talk about why he says that and what that means. What does it mean that my name is in the book of life? What does it mean that your name is in the book of life? Well, let me give you a couple examples from Revelation. We actually see that phrase several times in the book of Revelation, and the first one is in Revelation 20, 12. And he says, I saw the dead, great and small, which I have no idea what that means, right? I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And then just, just a few verses later, in verse 15, he says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake, lake of fire. So at the end of all things, for those whose names are not found in the book of life, they will be condemned to hell. And, and that should break our hearts. Like, for those whose names are not found in the book of life, they will be thrown into the lake of fire. And then those whose names are found in the book of life, those are the people who have trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord of life. These people have believed that Jesus has died and risen from the grave, and the Holy Spirit has awoken their hearts to see the grace of Christ. Okay, Revelation 21, 27. Nothing unclean will enter it, 
nor anyone who does what is detestable are false, but only those who are written, and then we get another name for the book of life, are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so here's just a side question, just because we can't read, not read this text and then not ask it. It's probably the most important question that anyone will ever ask, but, and I'm really curious, do you really believe that your name, this is a physical book, do you really believe that your name is in that book? Do you really believe that at the end of the day? Like, have you admitted your sin and brokenness before God? Have you seen the glory and wonder of Jesus Christ on the cross? Do you really believe, like really believe, that his blood covers you and he has freed you from that sin? I believe if you do, then your name will be in that book. The question is, do you believe that? So here's the reality for our text today, though. The people we are talking about, Paul says they need to agree in the Lord. And I think Paul is imploring them here in verse 3. Don't forget, your names are in the book of life. Don't forget. So listen, the people in this room, okay, if they are a follower of Christ, they are not your enemy. I think we need to remember that. If they are a follower of Christ, they are not your enemy. Yes, you may disagree on some things, but we cannot forget that their names, even though you disagree, their names are in the book of life. And your name is in the book of life. And my name is in the book of life. That we belong to the same God, to the same Savior. The blood of Christ was not just for you. And it wasn't just for me. The blood of Christ was for his people, the ones that he would save. It covers us all. And especially, we have to remember this if we're in conflict with someone else, that we cannot forget they don't belong to me. They belong to Christ, just like I do. And it doesn't appear that these two women are are people who say they're followers of Christ, but their life is void of the gospel. These women appear to be legitimate followers of Christ. They have labored side by side for the sake of the gospel. And Paul wants them to remember your names are in the book of life. You don't belong to this world. You belong to Christ. And we can't forget, especially when we disagree with others, that that person belongs to Christ. They are loved by Christ. They are treasured by Christ. So that leads me to another question. Okay, what kinds of things are okay for us to disagree on as a faith family? What kinds of things are okay for us to disagree on? And are there things that we can't disagree on? Does that make sense? So what kinds of things are okay for us to disagree on? And are there things that we can't disagree on? Uh, First, let me start by looking at what these two women we're disagreeing on, and that's helpful here because we have to ask the question, okay, where is the tension coming from here? And to be honest, we don't know. We have no idea what these two women are fighting about. Paul doesn't say, but I think we can infer that whatever they were disagreeing about here was not a core doctrinal issue because we've seen in other places in his letter, if it was, he would have corrected them. He does that all over else. He corrects um, he corrects Peter, he corrects others, but here he doesn't say, hey, Yodia is right and Syntyche is wrong. He doesn't do that. But instead, he just urges them to agree, to be of the same mind of Christ. So let's take the first one first. 
are there things that we must agree on as a faith family? And the answer to that is yes, yes. There are things that we as, a follower, as followers of Christ must agree on. And here's two words that are helpful, okay? Clear and essential. These are things that are clear in Scripture. They're clear in Scripture that it is truth. And these are things that are essential to being a follower of Christ, meaning God has not left room for us to question or deny it's a reality, and if someone were to attempt to deny that reality, then we would have the right to say, I don't think you know the truth. I don't think you, you know the God that I know. So, so one example would be if someone started to question um, the Bible's authority, okay? If they were to say, hey, um, I, only bring, I only believe part of the Bible. I think this part of the Bible is true. I think this part of the Bible, we kinda, it's kind of optional, um, or if they said, hey, the Bible is helpful for instruction, but I don't really have to submit to everything that it says. We would say, no, sitting under the authority of the word is essential to being a follower of Christ. Another example would be if they were to deny that Jesus was actually God. <laughs> if they said, well, I just believe that Jesus was a good moral teacher. He had some helpful things to say, but he really wasn't God, right? We would go to that person. And we would open the scriptures with them in hopes that they would see truth that is clearly revealed in scripture. Scripture is also clear on many matters of sin and repentance, whether it's adultery or pornography or lying. I mean, and if someone were in these sins and they refuse to repent, if they either minimize their sin or they refuse to repent, Matthew 18 gives us instructions on how to do that that you go to that person individually, and then with a group. And then if they're still unrepentant of that sin, you bring it to the church. And even after that, if they're still unrepentant, Matthew 18 says you treat them as an unbeliever, right? So there are things, and I don't have time to go through all of them, there are things that we as a faith family must agree on. These things, these are things that are clear in scripture, like there's no room to question it, and they are essential to being a follower of Christ. Okay, what about the things that we can disagree on, right? And this is probably one of the things that Paul is addressing here in Philippians 4, that there are things that are not clear in the Bible, and they're not essential to being a follower of Christ. And these things, if you've been around the church world for a long time, have the potential to be very divisive, and they can become very heated, right? That one person would say, I think we should do this, I believe this, and another would say, well, I don't think we should do that, and then you have conflict. Here's one example. How many of you know what Awanas is? Many of you know what Awanas is, right? Um, we don't have Awanas here, okay? And that makes a lot of people really happy, and it makes other people really mad, right? Because you believe that we should have Awanas. Well, whether or not we have Awanas or don't have Awanas, that's something we can disagree on. And that's okay, right? That there are some of you uh, who would say, I think that we should, our kids' ministry should be like this, and this is how we teach our kids. And there are some who say, I don't think that's the best strategy, right? Uh, another example, and this one's pretty practical for me, because I've gotten this question a lot, uh, is the question, well, why don't you do an invitation at the end of your sermon? <laughs> and I, I don't do an invitation. I, I don't feel like God has led me to do an invitation, which, by the way, if you don't know what an invitation is, 
It's pretty traditional in Baptist circles where some, a pastor will stand up front after the sermon and receive anyone who wants to come and accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so they'll stand up front and receive them. And, and that's, I grew up with that when I became a Christian when I was a teenager, and I saw that all the way until I got to renewal. But I don't feel like God has led me to do that. Now, if Tristan or Rich or other elders said, hey, I want to do an invitation after my sermon, I would say, great, that's your call. Because that's not clear and essential, right? Nowhere in the Bible it will say, do an invitation or don't do an invitation. And it's not essential to being a follower of Christ. We are led to make that decision on our own, right? Non-clear and non-essential things, right? That's where a lot of tension comes from. It's a lot of where strife comes from. But it's also a place where we can show our unity to say, hey, we may not agree on these things. Like two weeks, we're going to the CAC. And if you don't agree that that's where God is leading us, that's okay. That's okay. You can tell us how you feel. Say, hey, I don't think that's the right call. And we'll say, look, we prayed about it. We're confident this is what God is doing. But at the end of the day, we can still be of one mind, one spirit, and strive side by side, even though we disagree on things like that. That our ability to talk through those things, non-clear and non-essential things, and still be one In Christ, it's a testimony both to each other and it's a testimony to the world that at the end of the day, it is Christ who unites our hearts together, okay? Okay, here's another important question when it comes to this idea of reconciliation. And I bring this up because I think it's important for us, our faith family, to talk about. Um, And so I I didn't want to miss this opportunity to to address it. Um, Here's the question. Am I required to forgive someone if they have sinned against me? Am I required to forgive someone if they've sinned against me? So if someone does something to me that the Bible, that God would call a sin, does God command me to forgive that person? The answer that scripture gives is yes. So grab your Bible And I want you to go to Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. And I want us to look at this parable together. Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. And this isn't the issue that I think he's talking to Yodia and Syntyche about. But I think in the faith family, a lot of times where sin starts, it starts with that tension of disagreement. And it can easily spill over into bitterness into anger, into envy, into rivalry. And so I think this is important to address. So Matthew 18, verse 21. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Okay, within Judaism, three times was significant enough, sufficient enough to show that you had a forgiving spirit. So Peter, like he always does, just ups his game a little bit and believes that he's being incredibly generous. But Jesus wants to communicate that his true disciples are to forgive without keeping count. That's the point of the 77, that you are to forgive without keeping count. So he says not seven times, but 77 times. And I'm going to be honest, when I read that this week, there was a little part of me that went, really? <laughs> like, come on, there's got to be some kind of cultural thing here. 
like something we can read into it and be, okay, that explains, like there's a limit, right? Like there was a little part of me that went, but God, you don't know what they've done to me. You don't know how they've wronged me. You don't know. I doubt that I'm the only one that feels like that. But then I started reading this parable. And I think the Holy Spirit just broke me. (laughs) So let me just read it. He says in verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, in American money, that's just saying a lot of money, millions of dollars, right? Basically, this guy owes this king an amount of money that's impossible to pay back. That's all you need to know. Verse 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. At this point in the parable, it's clear. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. We, just like the servant, have a massive debt to God that we can't pay back. We were dead in our sin with no ability to earn favor with God. We could not earn our salvation. We can't do it. We cannot earn our salvation. But through Christ's death on the cross... God has forgiven us our debt. And the forgiveness that he has given us should create in us an immense amount of gratitude and joy. And it has a lot of implications on how we treat others. That who are we to hold others in contempt for what they have done to us when God has been so gracious to us despite what we have done to him? Verse 28, but when the servant that same servant went out. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, which is basically like 10 bucks. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. So this guy, who has been forgiven an immense debt, has revealed that the forgiveness that was given to him, it holds no weight. It was not transformative. He does not fully understand the implications of the forgiveness that has been given to him. And then Jesus ends the parable with a terrifying warning. It says, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, and in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then verse 35, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So, am I required to forgive someone if they've wronged me? Yeah. A person who understands the grace of Christ will show the grace of Christ. And look, I I know there's a whole other conversation to be had about this. Well, forgiveness isn't the same as trusting them again. Forgiveness isn't the same as them being restored back to the relationship that it was. That's a good conversation to have, and we should have it, but I think sometimes that is used to minimize what Jesus actually said. 
He actually said, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So let's not have that conversation until we deal with that. Here's a um, simple illustration that I think is helpful. Um, Let's say that you invite me over to your house and I accidentally knock over a $100 lamp and break it, right? There are two options at that point if I break that lamp. You could say, all right, you owe me $100. Or you could say, it's okay, don't worry about it, right? And and so you either replace the lamp yourself or you just live with less light. (laughs) You just walk around in the dark, right? So either I pay you for the cost of the lamp or you absorb that cost yourself. But the breaking of the lamp has created a debt on my end. Now, the question is, who's going to pay off that debt, me or you? Okay, let's take that on a bigger scale. That makes sense. When someone sins against you, that creates a debt. There is damage that has been done, and now you're owed something, right? Let's say that someone says something and hurts your reputation. They gossip about you, or maybe they actually hurt you physically. A debt has been created. So option one is you make them pay, right? You gossip about them back. You try to control the situation and you call them liars and you move the pieces on the board to make sure, right? To make sure that they pay for what they did to you. If they hurt you physically, you punch them back, right? They made you suffer, so now you want to make them suffer. You want to pay that debt back, which is typically what the world does. Option two is you absorb the debt that has been put against you. You forgive them. And there is nothing easy about forgiveness. When you want to get even, when you want to have hateful thoughts, but you refuse in order to forgive, it hurts. It hurts. Why? because you are absorbing the cost of that pain. You are forgiving them, and it is costing you. So let me ask you a question. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to die? Because a debt has been made by us. We have intentionally wronged him. We broke the lamp. So when Jesus says in Mark 8, I must suffer and die, he is saying the only way I can forgive the sins of humanity is to suffer, is to absorb that cost. Either you will pay for the penalty of sin or I will pay for it. And I will suffer so that you don't have to. I will absorb your sin and shame on the cross. So please hear this. Please hear this. The one who hurt you, they may never truly understand what it costs for you to absorb that pain. You may want them to, you may try to communicate the best you can, but they may never truly understand what that cost you to forgive them. But God does know. He knows that pain. He knows the pain of being scorned. He knows the pain of being sinned against. He knows the pain of being beaten, being ridiculed. He knows it and he absorbed it. And despite what we did to him, he loved us. He absorbed that pain, and he forgave us. And because he did, so can we with one another. One last question before we close, because this is important too. What if that person either refuses to repent of how they've wronged me, or they refuse to accept my forgiveness? I would say if that's the case, 
I would just remind you of what Paul said in Romans 12, Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with y'all. You cannot change another person's heart. God would not give us that responsibility. He would not, he, he wouldn't. Only God can change someone's heart. So let me ask you, is there a brother or sister, maybe in this place or, or not here, maybe they don't even go to this church, but a brother or sister in Christ, that you know that you're not of the same mind in Christ? Like, do you feel that tension with them? I think Paul would say the same thing to you that he said to these two women in Philippi. I entreat you to agree in the Lord. And the gospel is too important to let non-clear and non-essential things divide us. And true gospel, true gospel transformation doesn't collapse in the face of conflict, but rather it unites us despite our conflict. Practically, that means that you may need to have some awkward conversations today or this week that you may need to ask someone for their forgiveness, or you need to share with someone how they've hurt, or maybe you need to talk through some non-essential and non-clear issues and ask God to help you be of one mind and of one spirit. My, my prayer for our faith family is that we wouldn't brush our conflicts under the rug in hopes that they would just magically solve themselves. And, and I pray that we would also not be a people that instead of dealing with conflict here, that we would just give up on church and run away. There's a lot of hurt, hurt people or pastors have hurt them, or other church members have hurt them that have just given up, given up on church, and they've run away. I pray that we wouldn't do that, but that we would strive side by side to be of one mind, strive side by side in the gospel, and that we would be able to say, yeah, we may disagree on some things, but we have the same mind in Christ. And then the last thing is, look, the reality is there may be some of you here who need, may need to repent, Maybe you were the one who sinned against someone. Maybe you were one, someone who sinned, was sinned against, but you responded in bitterness and anger. And so you didn't do the initial sin, but your response was sin. And so maybe the, we're going to sing two songs here in a minute. Maybe for some of us here, we just need to spend these two songs just repenting, asking for God's forgiveness. Because if you ask, he will give it. It's with a true heart. And so my plea to us as a faith family is that we would, in humility, kneel at the feet of Jesus on the cross and said, I can do this because you did it for me. I know you love me. And so give me the heart that loves my brothers and my sisters. Mm-hmm.